Human resources, employee relations, the legal department are aligned against you. Your employer has trained for this day, the day you've become an expendable number at work. There are robust laws that may protect you, but unlike the company, you've not been drilled on how to wield them. You're playing catch-up. There are pitfalls to avoid and countermeasures to deploy that may save your job or put you in the best position to negotiate a favorable settlement. Minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. The Walking Papers podcast offers the first foray into learning how to turn the tables when you've been targeted at work. Knowledge is power. Let's get started. Great. Pop. Watch it. How fast are you going? I can't tell. The speedometer's milking. Pull over. Top of the morning, officer. Hi. Is there something I can help you with? What the hell are you driving here? We had a small fire last night, but we caught it in the nick of time. <laughs> you have any idea how fast you were going? Well, funnily enough, I was just talking to my friend about that. Our speedometer's melted, and as a result, it's very hard to say with any degree of accuracy exactly uh, how fast we were going. 78 miles an hour. 78, huh? Well, yeah, I could buy that, sure, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, you would know better than us, uh, especially since we got a melted speedometer. Do you feel this vehicle is safe for highway travel? Yes, I do. Yes, I really do. I, I, I believe that. I know it's not pretty to look at, but it'll get you where you want to go. Now, you got no outside mirror. No, we lost that. You have no functioning gauges. No, not a one. However, the radio still works. Funny <laughs> as that may seem, with all this mess, that the radio is the only thing that's really working good, and it's as clear as a bell. Don't ask me how. <laughs> I can't let you go ahead in this vehicle. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Walking Papers podcast. I am your host, Robert Ingalls, and I am here with attorney Josh Van Campen. The title of today's episode is How Picking the Right Employment Lawyer is a Lot Like Buying a Car. Josh, tell us about that. So, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, is that not one of the best movies of all times? John Candy. Those aren't pillows. <laughs> so I couldn't figure out how to integrate the pillow scene into the story, but <laughs> I, I did into this scene. So, you know, the quote, it's, it's not pretty to look at, but it'll get you where you want to go. A lot of times people spend more time picking their car than they do picking their lawyer. And there is, you know, in terms of some of the most traumatic things that can happen to you in your life, other than a, a loss of a family member, a loss of a job is usually the second most important one. And people a lot of times are so nonchalant in picking an employment lawyer or even, even doing the research to find an employment lawyer. And in particular in the employment law sector, it's really important to pick the right lawyer because you're going up against a corporate defendant and a big law firm. And so you, you know, there's going to be a power asymmetry there. And you need a lawyer who's going to be able to lift you up to an equal playing field uh, with the corporate law firm that you're going to be up against. So you would never buy that car that John Candy <laughs> was driving. You need to know better about picking uh, the right lawyer, too. Sure. I think that's a situation where people feel like they don't have enough information. So instead of stressing out too much, they just kind of throw a dart at the board and hope for the best. Right. Well, and the other thing is there, there aren't a lot of spaces on the board either. You know, in most cities, there's usually an underserved community for, you know, folks in need of employment lawyers because 
there are a lot of easier ways for lawyers to make a living than uh, suing companies for discrimination, you know, because it's not an easy thing to do. You don't always get the cream of the crop that gravitates to that area either. Sure. So why is it so important that you pick the right employment lawyer? So back in my management side days in, in Chicago, I remember the impressions that the partners that I would work with would have depending on what law firm was hired or on the other side of a case. And I would say 75% of the law firms that we were up against, usually it was a shrug. Uh, we're not worried about that firm. You know, we got, we got this. And then I remember those same like hardened litigators who were management side litigators. We get a letter from another firm in Chicago and there would be fear in their eyes. They would be like, this is not going to be fun because they, they knew that they met their match or even a firm that is better equipped than they are. And so when I uh, decided that I wanted to be a plaintiff's attorney, that was the impression I wanted to make. I wanted to break the mold, not the seven, be the 75%, but be that, that oh shit moment that uh, you know, a company gets a letter from my law firm. Right. Not like, oh, we know this guy, he plays ball. <laughs> right. Or he just writes letters. Right. And that's the problem. The mold that most corporate attorneys or these companies have is that Oh, the lawyer's just writing a letter. He's going to you know, see what shakes out of the tree and we'll throw him a little money and that'll go away. And that is the mold that we need to be breaking for listeners today. So I hear you keep using that word mold. Tell me more about that. What does that mean? Well, I think most people, when they go and they're looking for a lawyer, there are a couple different types of lawyers that you know, they may be able to get a, an appointment with. One is this solo practitioner. So it's just a lawyer, a one, one lawyer shop who may have a, you know, a team around them, but a solo practitioner is pretty typical. There are also some large firms, but they're not going to, you know, they're very unlikely to want to meet with you to sue a company. And then you have what are called boutique firms, small firms like mine that may specialize in a particular area, which is what we do. And, you know, we have at this point three and, and soon to be four lawyers. But the stereotype or the mold that we're trying to break is, is the lawyer who does not have the resources to go toe-to-toe with corporate law firm. And that's why I think, you know, really the boutique law firm is the best one that's set up for that because we would have essentially the same resources as the big firm to fight on a lawsuit-by-lawsuit lawsuit basis. And then boutique firms usually have the resources to help front costs where clients can't afford to, where it's a solo practitioner is usually unable to do that. Again, it's breaking the mold. And, and unfortunately, the mold of the solo practitioner, there are negative stereotypes that go around with that. But the thing is, there are solo practitioners who are some of the best lawyers in the state. But the stereotype for a solo practitioner is you know, outmatched over, you know, doesn't have the resources to fight too many clients, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, another thing that's really important is hiring a law firm that is a litigation law firm. So in there, you're just looking for trial attorneys. Now, kind of a well-kept secret is that litigators go to trial all the time. Or employment litigators actually don't. You, you know, you may be lucky to have one or two trials a year. But you have to have a law firm that files a lot of lawsuits, that takes a lot of depositions. And if the other side realizes that, then they know you're not just writing a letter. This is a law firm that's going to back up a letter with a lawsuit, in other words. Right. They know you're willing to go to the mat, so they've got to play the game with that in mind. Or even eager to. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's say that I have just been fired. How do I go about identifying potential employment lawyers? Because it seems now 
frequently most people will type, you know, employment lawyer into Google and then maybe just start there. Right. So I think before you get on your keyboard, get on your phone and actually use it as a phone and call uh, family members who are lawyers or even family members who aren't lawyers who might know lawyers. Your first kind of foray into finding a lawyer should be to talk to people and lawyers, not because you're trying to hire that person, but because you're trying to gather intelligence about who are the best employment lawyers in town. I always start there and don't just make one call, really call anybody that you can think of and start getting some leads there. And only after that would I start Google searching. Okay. So I've made some phone calls. I've talked to my former employees. I've talked to people that I know in my network. Now I'd like to start at least exploring on Google. How do I go about that? There are certain kind of stock terms that are going to pull up the right law firms. So employment lawyers and your city or your state is a logical search for sure. Now you're going to get a lot of these paid for links up top, or I think, what do they call that kind of premium content type links? I would stay away from those firms in general, because usually those are firms that are pouring a lot of money into marketing and they may be making up for not getting a lot of referrals from other lawyers. And this pay for click type placement on Google, usually they're compensating for something. Kind of like somebody who drives a big monster truck. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, for that reason, I would stay away from the paid for click firms. But now at that point, you're looking at the, just the organic placements. And just because a law firm is placed well on the first page doesn't mean that it's a good law firm. And you can tell so much about the law firm based on what the website looks like. So if you are looking at a website that looks like it hasn't been updated in five or 10 years, then that law firm is very unlikely to be a tech-savvy law firm. And in litigation in this day and age, it's all about technology and fighting over what's called electronically stored information and knowing how to keyword search and, and do forensic searches of computers and that sort of thing. So if you have a law firm with an outdated website, they probably have an outdated approach to technology. And so be careful about that. And then also then look at the content. So if a lawyer is just in it for the money, they're unlikely to have a law firm that is a resource of information. It's usually just enough information to get the client to pick up the phone or to email. Whereas if you can spend 40 minutes on a website and just learning, you know that you have a true believer usually for a lawyer. If there's a lot of content on the website and it's helpful and it's free, I think that that's a good sign as well about a potential lawyer. Right. A lawyer is looking to help you out and educate you on what your problem is and kind of speak to you before they even ask you to speak to them. Right. And then the reality is 90% of the people who visit the website aren't necessarily going to turn into clients, but the lawyer may have helped that person just by making all that content available. Sure. Now, there's a lot of fanfare around top-tier law schools and a lawyer's pedigree. Is that something as a potential client for an employment lawyer that I should be thinking about? No. <laughs> that, one's, that one's easy. That was quick. Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, the law school really doesn't matter. And in fact, if, if you were overlooking, say, an outdated website or a website that's low on content, but you see that somebody went to Harvard, you would be making, I think, a potentially bad assumption about that lawyer. So for example, when I'm conducting intel on my opposing counsel, 
I'm not going to see where they went to law school. I'm seeing if, you know, if they're ranked, I'm seeing what kind of reported cases that they have, what they've accomplished, but not, not the law school pedigree. So please don't make hiring decisions about your lawyer, depending on where they went to law school. And I think if uh, politics can teach us anything over the course of our life is that there's a lot of lawyers from pedigreed schools who maybe don't seem like, how do I phrase this, the most intelligent lawyers? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if I offend people, but I am holding Ted Cruz above my head <laughs> and about to body slam him on me. So I, I, feel, I feel that. Now, law firms come in all shapes and sizes from, you know, small offices and strip malls to high-rise apartments. What is it about the law firm's physical location? Does that matter? I mean, to me, the optimal location is Better Call Saul. Do you remember Better Call Saul? Of course, every he episode. Had the inflatable, was it an inflatable Statue of Liberty or <laughs> pillars? I, <laughs> I forget. So uh, anyway, I, did, I would just hire Saul because I love the show. <laughs> but um, so yeah, strip mall offices, well, you don't want to judge a book by its cover. But remember, we talked about breaking the mold. It's important for your lawyer to have a nice office because you're likely to be conducting mediations and depositions in, in that office. And if the office exudes accomplishment and that their firm is successful, that you're breaking the mold. So when the you know, general counsel walks in the door and they walk into a nice office, they're saying, this firm is different. It actually is important. Now, that doesn't mean you need to have a law firm in a high rise. I mean, I could care less if the other law firm is in a high rise or not, but I, I think it's important that the office still be nice and, and well furnished. And like our office is in an old house with a couple dogs walking around. We love this kind of relaxed type environment and our clients seem to be more comfortable here, but still it's a nice old house that's got nice furniture and a nice conference room table and, and stuff like that. Sure. And I, I have to assume that when someone's in a stressful situation, this relaxed environment has to be pretty peaceful for them. Right. I stop acting crazy as soon as the client <laughs> walks in. <laughs> Everybody, I, I pretend that being a litigator is just grand. Yeah, keep it together. <laughs> now, I think sometimes someone who works in a high-rise office, an executive at Bank of America or another large company, they may be thinking, okay, I come from this prestigious position. Do I need a, a big firm to handle it? Yeah, and you're right that that seems to be the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of executives that don't do the research into finding good resources in town. Here's the problem with executives hiring big firms is that big firms very rarely file lawsuits on behalf of individuals because that's not their MO. It's really usually the partner, even if he wants to help you, has to go to some committee to convince them on why they can file a plaintiff lawsuit. So... A lot of times these big firms will agree to write a letter, but if the letter doesn't work and a lawsuit becomes necessary, then the big firm then refers it out to a firm like mine. And the other law firms know that. So they'll know that if they get a, a letter from a big law firm, it's probably just for negotiations and that this big law firm is going to go away. So I think the better approach is if your city has a good boutique, plaintiff side employment law firm. Uh, to go uh, with that firm first. Gotcha. Now we're going to switch gears here a little bit and talk about consultations. And the initial consultation is where someone's going to come in, they're going to sit down, they're going to tell you their story, right? Right. So what should I be looking for in a lawyer during a consultation? What kind of things should I be thinking about or questions should I be asking 
when I'm going to sit down and have that first meeting. You know, first of all, is the lawyer under the influence? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's probably good standard procedure for yeah, almost anything. Right. Such a stressful job. But no, seriously, when you're, when you walk into a consult, I think number one is, has this lawyer done any homework? So are they starting from scratch when you open your mouth or are they already familiar, at least in part, with the situation? So for example, with our lawyers, we have the client submit a timeline in advance and also documents. And so for 20 minutes, at least before we meet with a client, we're already going through the documents. So we're, we're familiar with the situation in general. So you want to have a law firm that's already working before you've hired them by doing some due diligence. And then the other thing is the client or the lawyer interested. And I can tell you, so I was hiring and in the market for a family lawyer, unfortunately. And the lawyer who came highly regarded, I, I walked into the conference room and we were kind of going through this process and he yawned and I saw him yawn. And, and so in my mind, I'm saying, that's a bad sign. I've had better cases. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he came highly recommended mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. town. So I ignored the yawn and I ended up needing to get a new lawyer down the line. So pay attention to how interested, how energetic your lawyer is in that console. Now I see uh, frequently you'll see the difference between lawyers in they'll have free consultations, they'll have paid consultations. My mind would tell me, at least intuitively, always go for the free consultation. That way I don't have to pay. I can see what my options are. What are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, would you go to a free massage? <laughs> you know, it's that sort of thing. I mean, usually if a, a lawyer is offering a free consultation, <laughs> It's, uh, it's not a good sign to me because, you know, we're, if you're a law firm that's busy, then they're probably not going to offer free consults because you've got the law firms kind of squeezing you in for a consult. They're taking new clients, but not a lot of new clients. So usually you get what you pay for. Right. So I wouldn't take a free consult with a lawyer. I'd rather pay the three fifty an hour or whatever it is. And you get what you pay for. Now, of course, a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to go into a consult, pay a consult fee and not know if I'm even going to get any help. So I understand that concern. But at least for us, if we think it's worthwhile enough for you to come in for a consult, we're wanting to take it to the next level. Now, we may learn something in the consult where we say, it's, we don't think we can be effective because sure. something that wasn't apparent before. But most people who come in for a paid consult are going to get an offer of representation. Yeah. And not to, you know, not to sound like I'm towing the line, but I think there's a lot of value in knowing that you don't have a case instead of sitting around and thinking, well, I wonder, you know, maybe I should have, and even 20 years from now being like, I wonder, maybe I should have. I think for that limited amount of money, there's a lot of peace of mind involved in understanding that a legal professional has vetted the situation and said, we don't really see a lot of paths here. Right. That's a great point because the worst case outcome for you actually is that you go in, you get a consult, you pay for a consult and the lawyer gets involved, writes a letter, goes to the mat, and then you don't get anything out of it. You may be investing money into costs and resources. And so you're right. It is better to know that your case has problems in the front end so that you cannot waste all those resources and, and then the emotional energy that comes along with this kind of fight. Sure. Now, what can I be doing on my side prior to meeting with an attorney to make sure that that consult is as effective as possible and ensuring that I can find a lawyer to take my case? Right. 
So understand that in a way, the lawyer is kind of auditioning for you, but you're also auditioning for the, the lawyer as well. I remember one time I had a consult where somebody came in smelling of alcohol. Jeez, it sounded like a good case, but there was no way in heck I was going to you know, represent him because for that, that reason, so that's an egregious situation, but also uh, unorganized clients. So the lawyer is trying to learn as much as possible in an hour time. And if you're, you're scattered and you don't remember your dates or you're only able to give pet peeve for me is to only give first names for people. I can't in negotiations say, oh, and then, you know, then Rob fired my client and general counsel is going to be Rob who? And I don't know his last name, you know, so it's you know like, who I'm talking about. <laughs> so know your dates, know your players and be prepared to tell your story in a succinct way. Because if you don't, the clients or the lawyers much more likely to decline the representation because the lawyer's picking a partner in litigation just like you're picking a partner and a lawyer. Another flip side of that, Rob, is do you like each other? So, you know, some of my best friends are former clients of mine. And a lot of times you can just, you know, how you just click with somebody and you're like, and it's more than just the attorney representation. It ends up being friendship or sometimes with me, their clients, I'm like, I was put here to help this person. And I, it's like apparent to me. And I wish it was like that. In every console, right. <laughs> I would walk around very happy, but uh, I don't always feel that way, but, but it's not uncommon for me to. So um, pay attention as an individual to how you feel about that lawyer. And if you're just getting a bad feeling or you really don't feel like you're connecting, really follow your instincts. You're much better off to pay another consult fee and find the right fit than to say, well, I you know, invested $300. I'm just going to go with this, this person. Yeah. And that relationship can go on for you know a year or more, especially if the case ends up going to litigation. So that relationship between you and that lawyer becomes even more important because you're on a journey together. You're in a foxhole together. Yeah, exactly. And it's so much fun to celebrate together too. I mean, I remember I settled a big case. We litigated against a large tech company. It involved the production of, we got a really good motion to compel granted, and we got thousands of pages of information and data, treasure trove. And it came time to destroy all that stuff. And so <laughs> these, this, these were in CDs back in the day. And so my client got out a big sledgehammer and we sledgehammed those desks as we drank bourbon. And, uh, and then I don't think we burned them, you know, because we thought <laughs> we'd probably, you know, give ourselves cancer or something. But, uh, <laughs> but kind of, we, we destroyed them that way. I like it's kind of the office space moment. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, with the printer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then with the paper, we burned it in his you know, backyard uh, chimney. Right. Celebration. Yep. All right. Well, we have covered a lot of ground here today. Thank you so much for your time, Josh. And we'll see you on the next episode. All right. Thanks, Rob. Congratulations for taking an important initial step in turning the tables at work. But this podcast is just an educational resource. It does not constitute legal advice and is no substitute for consulting an employment attorney about your unique situation before making legal decisions. Visit our website for more online resources and videos at ncemploymentattorneys.com. Or better yet, call 704-247-3245 for a free initial intake interview so Van Camp and Law can evaluate your case. Until next time, keep your head up and your wits about you. 